Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. On Friday this week, I conducted the funeral of our oldest member. When I say oldest member, I don't mean the person who's been the longest member of the church, that's Elizabeth Thompson, but the person who's oldest in age. Jean Curry passed away a week past uh, the age, she would have been 98, I think it is at the end of August, and after a time at Croftbank House, she passed away peacefully. And we give thanks to God for Jean's life and for her commitment to the Lord and to his service. And that was seen because even in her latter years, when I would visit her, she would ask about the Sunday school, about the work with the young people, about what was happening, about Elizabeth and our work with SU. And it was obvious that she was asking, not simply just for information, but because in her heart she remembered before God that work she had in her younger days been committed to working extensively with Sunday School, both in her church life at the beginning of her, in her early years when she was a member of North Kelvin Side Church under the ministry of Tom Allen, right through to the years of service in Townhead Church in Cote Bridge. A woman who was committed to the care and ministry amongst young people and of the gospel amongst young people. So we give thanks to God for her and many others like her of her generation, who while old in years were still young in heart and committed to seeing those who were younger come to know Jesus. And as I came back from the funeral and drove up the main street, uh, young people were out in force. Um, the school, the grammar school, young people were out and the shops were inundated again, especially Greg's and the, the food suppliers with queues of young people outside of them. I have to say not much social distancing going on um, and not very many wearing masks or anything, but there certainly were plenty of them. And it's good in some ways to see our young people getting back to some semblance of normal life after school's been shut for so long. <coughs> it's been a concern not only to parents but to all of us, I'm sure, to see um, the dislocation that's brought this past week and the whole upset over exams and the uncertainty that that has brought to many of our younger people, to those going to university or college who are going to be going with a very different set of expectations and different sets of experiences than certainly past generations have known. The whole social scene of university or college life um, not being available. And of course, those who are looking for a job, well, our thoughts can be not only for younger people, but the 730,000 people who have been added to the unemployment register since lockdown began. It's obviously been a challenging time for many people. Indeed, there are serious questions about the consequences of this lockdown. I was reading an article this past week, and while I'm sure many of us will not agree with the tenor of this comment, I'm going to read it to you. This gentleman, one of his tweets, um, railed against the government's virus measures. Listen to what he had to say. Never in the history of human medicine has so much been sacrificed by so many to prolong the life of so few. The sooner we stop the idiocy of this, and he uses a word which I won't repeat, of this lockdown, the better. We can't beat the virus. Never in the history of human medicine has so much been sacrificed by so many to prolong the life of so few. Of course, all human life is valued. All human life has an intrinsic value. All of us are created in the image of God. The whole of humanity is made in his image and therefore has a value. But interesting enough, as we turn to our Bibles, we have to recognise, indeed this is one of the criticisms of Christianity and of biblical faith made by those who are not believers, we have to recognise that God does show partiality, that there are people who seem to matter more than others. 
I'm sure that's even a shock to many of you listening to this. That's not our understanding of the faith. If people say that, we immediately deny that is the case. We point to the ministry of Jesus and we hum and we haw. But I'd want to suggest that too many of us, far too many of us, especially in the West, have been so influenced by a liberal humanism, which sounds so acceptable and sounds so plausible and seems to be so right that we actually have been led astray from the realities of the God of the Bible. And interesting enough, that liberal humanism that is so prevalent within our own culture has led to one of the most divided and, how would you say it, divided and, and unhappy societies that this world and this country has ever known. We live in a world of great discrepancy. We world a world of great injustice. We live in a world where there is great inequality. And that, I'm afraid to say, is often the result of liberal humanist interference in the affairs of our world. The God of the Bible is the God who cares for his people. We saw last Sunday that Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts emphasised God's commitment to having a people. It's not that God doesn't have a care for his world, but above everything else, his people has been his plan and purpose from the beginning. We saw that when we saw that the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament, called Abraham to leave his country and his people and to go to a land and that Abraham would become a father of a people who would have a special relationship with God. The promises of God, of course, are contained within the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament. The vast majority of those promises are for his people, for those who know him, who love him, and who are contained within his covenant of mercy and love. There's no way of avoiding that truth. And if we try to avoid that truth, as I say, we are moving far away from a biblical picture of God and of his purposes. He does show partiality. He delivered his people from Egypt. And supremely, of course, we're told that while the Father God, the creator of heaven and earth, has a passion, a compassion for this world, and indeed for his creation, quite specifically, we're also told that Jesus Christ loved the church, his people, and gave himself for them, for his church, for his people. And as we've been looking at the book of Acts, we see that certain people stand out, God's commitment to taking people who are nothing as far as the world's might concerned, but using them dramatically for God. Things matter to God, people matter to God, when they, above everything else, put him at the centre of their lives. We've been seeing that as we've been reading through the book of Acts, and particularly we've seen as we've looked at the life of Stephen, and we're going to look on a wee bit to the story of Philip. Here are people who in many ways were non-entities. They certainly wouldn't have achieved status in a human history of the world. They would never have been mentioned by the the writers of the ancient world, but they're mentioned in the Bible because they matter to God. They matter to God because they were used by God to fulfill his purposes. God's purposes for his people matter to God above everything else. And those who matter to him are those who fulfill and are obedient and are caught up in those purposes. People like Jean Curry and her concern for the purposes of God. People like Stephen and Philip, and others, who were called, of course, if you remember, to look after practical ministry. But the story is that there was a, an issue over the, the widows being provided for, and the church, or 
The apostles decided the church should select from among them seven men who would be full of the spirit and wisdom who would take on this responsibility and were told that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip. And of course we saw last Sunday of how Stephen was a major figure and is a major figure in the story of the early church. He is uh, someone who really matters if we're going to understand the story of the early church. His sermon where he quite logically and very clearly and quite almost intellectually takes the story of the Bible and shows how it's fulfilled. God's purposes for his people have been fulfilled in the sending of his son. Paul, uh, Stephen rather, makes it very clear that the righteous one, the Messiah who has come, is the fulfillment of the promises of God, and that is for his people. And of course he challenged, because those who have received much, much is expected. And so he challenges the end of his sermon, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised, you're just like your ancestors, you always resist the Holy Spirit, was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute, they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but not have not obeyed it. That challenge that what mattered to God was a people who, above everything else, believed that he mattered to them. Of course, the result of that, as we saw last week, was that he was martyred. We read that in, the, in Acts chapter 7, verse 54, the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We've t looked time and again that that ultimate big picture of God and the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, of that eternal perspective, is what really matters. And that is what should matter to us if we claim to be a child of God, one of his people, that bigger eternal picture, not the passing things of this world, not status or wealth or position or how we look or how we come over. What should really matter is what matters to God, that is his glory revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. But of course, when Stephen refers to that, those who are opposed to God, those who hate the idea that God is important and that his truth matters, they re react in a very strong way. We're told in verse 57 that they covered their ears, yelled at the top of the voices, they all rushed at Stephen, dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, Stephen matters because he revealed Jesus even in his death. You see the parallel connections between Christ and the cross and Stephen now being martyred, those direct connections that the book of Acts continually want to turn our minds to, to the ministry of Jesus, to the death and resurrection of Jesus, to, to the one who is the, the, the rock upon which the church is built, the cornerstone upon which the church is built. Stephen reveals that that's what matters to God a life where Christ is revealed. And the consequence, of course, that is his death. Stephen matters because he's the first martyr of the church. 
But notice, as you read that story, there's a name, another name mentioned, and that name is Saul. And I'm sure for most of us listening to this, we presumably already are beginning to think, well, that's Saul. Is that not the man who became Paul? And later on, of course, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, we read of the conversion of Saul and the changing of his name to Paul. But interesting here, you see, young Saul is standing there. The coats of the witnesses are laid at his feet. They're fulfilling, actually, what the book of Leviticus said should be done to a blasphemer. So in one sense, they thought they were right. They're fulfilling the law. But of course, as those who held to a law, they lost sight of the spirit of the law, or the one who's the fulfillment of the law, or the one who gave the law. They were blinded. They couldn't see the wood for the trees. But they did carry out the legal requirements of the law of a man who's found to be a blasphemous. They were stoning him, taking him out of the city and stoning him. And they laid their coats at the feet of a young man and were told that this young man approved of their killing of him. And of course, this young man later on in life after his conversion was to say that he, of all Jewish people, was the most righteous. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As far as the law was concerned, he was a filler, every dot and every cross T and everything. But of course, his eyes had to be opened to see it was not by law, but by receiving God's grace that he was made right, that he, like Abraham, was to believe in God's promises. That's what matters to God, not how good, not how legalistic, not how religious we might be. But he was there. And certainly there's no doubt that later on in life, as Paul remembered as a boy or as a young man, as Saul, he watched Stephen's death, he remembered, he remembered what Stephen said. Indeed, in many ways, Paul's later teaching and ministry is heavily influenced by Stephen's style of proclamation here in Acts chapter 7. All of that God used. What seemed to be a disaster in the death of Stephen was actually the beginning of Saul's journey, not just to changing his name, but having a changed life. That, these are the things, that thing is what matters to God above everything else. So Stephen mattered to God. He was the first martyr. But of course, the consequences of that initially seemed to be pretty disastrous. We read in, later on in chapter 8, uh, well, beginning of, of chapter 8, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. It seemed to be a disaster what was happening. The whole thing was falling apart. The church was being scattered. And yet, ironically, actually, this is a sign of what Paul later on goes on to say when he says, all things work together for good with those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And remember what I said earlier, what matters to God is the fulfillment of his purposes for his people. And his purposes for his people had always been that they wouldn't stay in Jerusalem. Jesus had made that very clear, that they were to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, but then they were to go like ripples coming out from a stone dropped into a pool. They were to go out first to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. They hadn't been doing that. They had been caught up with all that was happening in Jerusalem. In one sense, that's perfectly understandable. But God, the sovereign God who rules over the affairs of men, rules over the affairs of the world, who's supreme over this COVID crisis and everything else that goes on, God uses all these things to fulfill ultimately his purposes. 
Because why? Because that's what matters to God. And his purposes are being fulfilled. The church is scattered. Read verse 4 of chapter 8. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was great joy in that city. And in verse 12 of chapter 8, they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptized both men and women. God is fulfilling his purposes. The purposes he really began, well, began certainly in the apostolic time or in the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament times, when Jesus met the woman at the well, the woman who came from Samaria with all the cultural and religious baggage that that brought with it. We don't have time to go through all of that again this morning. I hope you can remember it yourself. You should. And the story of that woman being encountered, then going back into Samaria and telling the people round about that she had met a man who told her about everything that she had ever done, that opening up, that revelation of God and Christ, and the beginning of the gospel seed being planted in Samaria, well, Philip now goes, and the witness perhaps of that woman and of others through the ministry of Jesus as Philip proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ and God's kingdom so that seed burst forth and brought forth a harvest. That's what matters to God, a people for himself. Jesus Christ loved the church, his people, and he gave himself for them. And that people wasn't restricted to those who lived in Jerusalem, nor was it restricted simply to those who were Hebraic Jews. We've already seen that because in the early church, Philip and Stephen, their very names speak that the fact that they were Greek-speaking, Greek-educated. They weren't Hebrews of Hebrews, they were Jews, but they were Greek-educated and cultured in their background. And that's important too. We see the sovereignty of God of all of this. If there had been a Hebrew of Hebrews who had gone to Samaria right away, all the baggage of these racial and historical things would have come to the surface. We're not listening to him. He's one of them. But Philip coming, speaking again in a, in a form of, of Aramaic that the people in Samaria would have understood because as a Greek-educated man he'd been able to do that, God used Philip in a unique way to reach these people. That matters to God, the reaching of his people. And the result of that, of course, is that the church is founded. Philip. Who's Philip? Well, Philip the evangelist. It's not a title given to him perhaps in the Bible, but it's a title very clearly dedicated and given to him because of his ministry. The preaching of the gospel, the making of Jesus known, of being obedient to his spirit. We'll see next Sunday what that means when he goes to evangelize the Ethiopian eunuch and the church grows. Interesting enough, this is Philip. This is not one of the apostles. It's Philip, a, a guy that, as I say, would not have been known, would not have been recognized. But he matters to God because he's sensitive to the spirit. He steps out in faith. He does what he's meant to do, preaches the word wherever he goes. He's sensitive to God's leading and he's a heart above everything else for Jesus because that matters above everything else to him. That's what matters to God and that's why Philip matters in God's kingdom purposes. 
So we have Stephen, the first martyr. We have Philip, the first evangelist. But we also have the story, and perhaps it's a surprising story as we draw to a conclusion, of Simon, who in many ways could be regarded as the first heretic. Let's go back to the passage, verse 9 of chapter 8. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was somewhat great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But we read that when people believed Philip and were baptized, Simon himself, verse 13, believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. And when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. And when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Why is this story contained? In some ways, it's a bit like the story of Ananias and Sapphira. If you were writing a book that was going to very positively tell us the story of the early church, you might have edited out the less, how would you say it, the less positive stories. The story of Ananias and Sapphira, people of faith whose hearts were filled with deception and who suffered the consequences, they dropped dead, literally, from shock of being exposed by the hand of God striking them down. That matters to God. Integrity, a human heart, how we really are inside is far more significant. Just look at what Jesus has to say to the Pharisees and warning them how they might appear like whitewashed tombs, but inside they're full of the rotten bones of a deadly religion and legalism. Jesus knows the heart of us all. And the story speaks of that. It's interesting, God is doing a new work in many ways. We actually have almost a mini Pentecost takes place. We read that the believers, when Peter and John goes to them, he, they pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And he, Peter and John place their hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Interesting, the book of Acts, every time that the church, in a sense, reaches out to a new area, begins to fulfill what Jesus had said was important, that they reached out ultimately to the ends of the earth, there is a manifestation of that birth. There is a, a birthing sign. And that birthing sign is a coming upon the believers of the Holy Spirit, a mini-Pentecost. And that's what happens here amongst these Samaritans. For Jews, that would have seemed uh, impossible. How can these half-castes, and that's what they were, they were the descendants of Jews who had stayed behind after the exile and who had intermarried with other foreign people. They'd done everything that could possibly be wrong, and yet God in his grace because his people mattered to him, had sought them out and brought out of that Samaritan people a gathering for himself. 
And the sign of that, the sign of God's purpose is being fulfilled, is the Spirit of God coming upon them. But here we have Simon. Simon, who certainly had some form of spirituality. Even before um, Peter, um, Philip rather, came, he, we, we, we're told that he, was a, he practiced sorcery in the city, verse 8, and amazed all the people. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, verse 10, both high and low, gave him their attention, exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him because they were amazed for a long time with his sorcery. He was somebody who had an alternative spirituality. And it's important for us to recognize that, that there is alternative spiritualities. And some of these spiritualities can appear very attractive. Some of these philosophies can appear very appealing. There is perhaps an element of almost authenticity about them. And they can, at least for a season, appear to be the answer, the way, the truth, and even the life. And, and Simon the Sorcerer was able to demonstrate that. We need to be aware of that. That there are other forces at work, the principalities and powers of this present age, Satan himself, the father of lies, the great deceiver, the one who appears as the angel of light. Do you remember the sermon on that a number of weeks ago now? And all of that is going on round about us and manifesting itself in the affairs of nations, including during this time of COVID crisis. And we need to have ears to hear. We need to have that sensitivity. We need to have the mind of Christ. And we need to be able to see through so much that appears so plausible, but actually, instead of delivering life, is actually leading to death and destruction, division and poverty and injustice. And Simon the Sorcerer, he realises for him at that time his game is up. And so he believes. He seems to adopt Christianity. He's baptized. He's one of the crowd. He probably uses even the right kind of language. But under the pressure of what God's Spirit is doing, his heart is revealed. He thinks that he can pay for a special blessing. Give me also this ability, verse 19, so that everyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This is a warning of what ultimately lies behind all false teaching, all false religion, all false beliefs, all heresy. Because ultimately, there's a division. Does God matter above everything else? And his kingdom, and his priorities, and his people, and his glory, and his majesty? Or is religion, or the philosophy we believe, however appealing that may be, ultimately going to feed self? Our interests, our ambitions, our dreams, our aspirations. We already saw from Ryan and Sapphire how God hates that type of deception. And unfortunately, even within the church, we can, can be attempt, we can be tempted to use the things of God for our own ends. Church history is full and cluttered with such people and with such ideas. And Simon the sorcerer is, in a sense, the first sign of that. It's a sad story in many ways. It reveals how corrupt, how deceitful, as God's word tells us, is the human heart, deceitful above all things. It reminds us, of course, of what Jesus had to say when, because he challenges us all when he says that on that great and final day, there'll be many who will cry, Lord, Lord, and Jesus will turn and say, I do not know you. Because you do not have the things of God at your heart, but the things of man. 
And Simon the sorcerer reveals that. Peter is very clear about it. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full, again in your heart, of bitterness and captive to sin. We can't pull the, eye, the wool over God's eyes. What matters to God is what we're really like in here and how we really think up here. That's what matters to God. And so, my friends, God does show partiality. His people are important to him. They're a priority. His glory and majesty is more important than everything else. And nothing else will he bear before him. And Philip and Stephen, they matter because they saw that priority. They lived their lives for his glory. They saw the kingdom as what mattered most above everything else, including their own lives. And my friends, if you or I want really to matter in the kingdom of God, in his purposes, in his glory, then we too, above everything else, must put him and his priorities before everything else in our lives and in our living. Because ultimately, that eternally is what matters. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for your word to us. It's challenge, yes, but also it's great encouragement. As we read the story of Philip, we thank you for people like Philip the Evangelist, people who maybe are not known or recognized, probably not known or recognized as far as the world's concerned. They'll never appear in a history book, but Lord, their lives matter. I think of a number of our fellowship, those who have passed on recently, older people or those like Irene who had an untimely death but who matter to you because your kingdom priorities matter to them and we thank you for them and for their lives and for the fruit of their labor lord that is what matters ultimately not what we have or possess our own or what the world might even give to us but that we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And we thank you for those whose lives have revealed that to us. We thank you for the fruit of their witness. And we pray, Lord God, you who alone knows into the hearts and can see into the hearts of men and women, in your mercy we repent of everything and anything that gets in the road of putting you first. Forgive us for our sins are many. Come by your spirit. And as Simon prayed that the Lord, or prayed for Peter and John to pray for him, so we asked that as we pray for each other, that would be our desire, that together we would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. For above everything else, O God our Father, we know that's what pleases you. That's what brings you glory. And that's what truly matters, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.